Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Coffin Talk, exit interviews with the living. Today, I am very proud to have our guest as my brother, Sam Oppenheim. Uh, It's not every day that you get to interview your own brother on a podcast, or actually, it probably is every day for a lot of people. But anyway, Sam, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, good. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm excited. Awesome. And uh, what our listeners should know is that I require absolutely no experience or any sort of background for this podcast. The whole point is just to interview a wide array of people. So obviously, I am going to interview people in my family as well as people I don't know. But um, today, I'm going to treat you like a stranger until uh, things get back to that primordial stage where we're like siblings and we start arguing. Uh, Sound like a fair plan? (laughs) Absolutely. Cool. Um, so how about just a little bit of background information real quick. Uh, if you don't mind telling me, uh, where did you grow up and how old are you and what generation do you think you belong to? Sure. So I was born in 1979, which means that um, this year, I guess I will turn 42. I grew up in the Bay Area of California. And um, although I was born during the Carter administration, you know, children don't form those memories. So my youth um, is the 80s. So I'm a child of the 80s. That is the generation I put myself in. But then there's these terms like Generation X and all that. I don't think that really pertains. Um, It doesn't make much sense to me as a way to, I think decades make more sense to most people listening probably. Yeah. And I totally understand that. I asked the question just to kind of situate people so the audience kind of knows, um, uh, because I'm actually thinking a lot of stereotypes are going to be broken with this podcast. Um, and what kind of stereotypes would those be? It'd be stereotypes of how people view life and death, basically. So without any further delay, the big, big question that I sometimes start with, but not always, uh, what do you think happens when you die? So that's a good question. I mean, obviously, none of us probably know with certainty. And I don't really know that I formed my complete opinion. My opinion might be swayable. But I, I think that um, I like the idea of, which I guess is how I've formed my own understanding of it. I like the idea of something sort of in the Buddhist Asian realm where there is something ineffable that is some way associated in some way associated with me that you could call the self or the soul in a, in a, you know, religious context that would continue after my death. Um, but I don't know if I really understand or claim to have knowledge about what happens beyond that something happens. I, I would, I would love the idea of reincarnation. Um, but, uh, you know, some background on me, I have studied religion in college and, um, you know, it's really interesting to see what philosophers and, and religious, uh, <laughs> folk have said about it. And, um, you know, the idea like in Buddhism is that you don't actually continue to associate yourself with your soul because that would be attachment. <laughs> and so part of me thinks that you should just sort of accept that maybe there is some continuation, but um, I don't actually claim to know. I, I guess I maybe I believe that I just might become one with the universe, but not disappear completely. <laughs> well, that was, that was a very good answer. You gave me about six strings I want to pull on and kind of, unt- uh, I want to get the clutter removed so that it's more clear to you and me what you think. Um, so my first question would be, 
you said that there's a you and then you use the word ineffable, which I love, um, that there's an ineffable part of you. So let's get into this idea of you with what seems to be a dynamic of multiple yous that you're calling one you. Um, so who is Sam? Right. Um, I mean, the identity I have was given to me by my parents and my upbringing. Right. And so I identify with myself. And so like, you know, you watch those movies where you switch bodies and you identify with yourself still, even though you're in a new body. I, I do believe in that. You know, there's something running that is Sam. But of course, it's almost 100 percent associated with this body. Well, let's get into that almost part, because that's really interesting. Um, so is there a part of you that is confident that Sam will go on beyond this life? To a certain extent, no. And to a certain extent, yes. I'm sorry if that's a bad answer to the question. No, there's no such thing as a bad answer except hanging up on me. But other than that, <laughs> I think I'm good with almost any answer. But what I do want to know is how confident are you that what happens here actually matters? Well, I'm extremely confident that what happens here matters because I have no way of knowing anything beyond the this. And I think that like what I'm a history teacher, by the way, I think that what happened in the past has a great impact on us now. And it's very important to understand history, at least for some percentage of people. I don't think that all humans have to study history. That would be absurd. But I think it's very helpful um, to study it and to understand it. So I think that what happens now matters a great deal because I do believe that, that reality is true. I don't I don't believe that this reality is an illusion and does not exist. That being said, I do like the religious idea of there being a greater truth beyond this reality that we're not that aware of now. Okay. And so that awareness, you kind of alluded to this earlier, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please, please stop me. But you think there's a chance that the current version that you're calling Sam merges into that? Yeah. I mean, like, so I have this, you, you know, when you're, when you're a child, you sometimes get ideas that stick in your head. And so I, I, I don't know where I got this from, whether it was like a, a children's book, you know, like maybe Douglas Adams and the, the, the universe or something. But I think I got the idea somewhere that like, you know, how an octopus has eight arms, right? But like maybe, maybe God, universal, religious spirituality has like an infinite number of arms and each arm is a soul. So like my soul that I identify with me is somehow like an arm connected to the universal God figure spirit. And so when I die, then, you know, it would go back into that. Or, you know, there's the other metaphor, which is the drops in the ocean. You know, you are a drop falling from a cloud while you're in your life. And then when your life ends, you return to the ocean. And then at some point, you know, you evaporate back up into a cloud and drop into a body again and fall to the ocean. Okay, so are you into this idea and it's something I should explore? Is this something that you feel more confidently than not is likely for you? Yes, if you that would be the way that I think it is. And I would yeah. Okay, that no, that's a good enough answer. So just work with me here because I'm going to ask you like six questions in a row and they are, you know, sequenced because I'm trying to figure something out from every guest and it's the same thing. So do you think that morality affects whether or not every single person alive right now merges back into that singularity? No. Okay. So with that answer of no, what consequences do your earthly actions actually have? Cause you said you believe in history and I'm not knocking anything you said, nor am I even disagreeing with it, but I want to really, really pull on this and make sure that it's uh, cogent. Right. So I believe that your actions have the greatest impact on the future in this realm that we all exist in. But I do like the Asian concept of karma, 
the idea that your actions could have an effect on you or your soul or the spiritual realm in the future. You like that, but do you actually let that affect the way you live? Um, have you ever seen a sign that said, don't take this donut, and then the reason you didn't take it is because you believe in this idea of karma and merging into the singularity? No, I think that my morality is more informed by the impact it would have on humanity. So if you were to take me down a road and you were to say, you know, like, here is a moral choice and it will not affect anyone on the planet. It won't save an animal. It won't save a life. But it's morally the right thing to do for your karma. I would be less motivated than if you said it will not count towards your karma. No one will know about it when you die but it will save a life or even if it will save an insect or, 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 you know, a small mammal. Okay. So this is great. You've definitely made a solid statement that I can really like rely on for the rest of this interview in a very positive way, which is that regardless of the universal truth of where Sam goes, when Sam dies, you are more motivated in this lifetime for sure to do things that would have earthly consequences than things that would have Sam merging into the singularity con consequences. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay, great. So how much does this philosophy of yours, which is a great philosophy, you have two philosophies kind of merged into one, you said, I'd like to think that, you know, I merge back into something, but I'm not willing to literally bet my life on it. And then you said, but either way, I am very sure that the consequences of the past affect the present that I live in and the present future that you won't live in. Is that correct? Yes. Um, you have children. I know this because you're my brother. And so like, for example, you know, uh, in a, in a perfect world, you'll pass before your children, right? I mean, right. That that's a, a normal answer. Not everyone agrees with that, and I'm not forcing you to. But um, so with that said, that would be like a perfect example of like you would do an action in this lifetime that might hurt, quote unquote, you if it benefited the life of your children. Is that correct? Yes. Like I might, for example, since we just had an inauguration of a president, I might vote against my own short term interests in terms of something that I think might long-term benefit the planet slash my children. That's a great, that's cool. That's really cool. And I like that. And that's uh, about the furthest into politics I'll ever let this podcast go, but in a very good way. Cause I, <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, you, you know what I mean, right? It's the idea that you would, you're willing to make a small sacrifice for the future. Yeah, exactly. Um, and not everyone is, and, and not everyone agrees. And that's kind of the point of this, but I do want to know how much this, this, idea of yours affects your day-to-day -day morality. So um, have you ever had something happen to you that you felt was unethical, like a person acted unethically and it affected you? Um, yeah, I'm sure I have. Okay, but I, I want you to try to, and again, you do not have to share what it is, but I want you to think if you can, and if you cannot, then we're going to skip this, but of a time where someone in your interpersonal life, so in, in other words, I don't want it to be like, well, this actor let me down, or this Hollywood star, or this politician, you know, but someone directly with you. So like a, a small example, I was, this is fake. I was a little kid and someone stole my bag lunch and I went hungry and I said, you shouldn't have done that. And they laughed at me and went home and nothing happened. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of when I have that self-righteous anger where I feel like someone has wronged me. Oh, 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 I have a good one. And I don't mind saying okay. the whole true story. Yeah. So I, I overstayed my visa in India and I got a knock on the door by um, the authorities and they told me that they wanted me to pay them a bribe. And I got furious 
because it's immoral for me to pay them a bribe. You know, it doesn't benefit the society. It's not the right thing to do, you know, but my friends all told me that there's, you're, you're, you should just do it. That's the way the system works. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a perfect example. And so did you, did you pay the bribe? Yes, I did. I, I, I talked to a judge. I actually had a friend who was a legal judge in the system of India. And they said, you're not going to hire a lawyer. You're not going to fight this in court. There's nothing you're going to want to do. Your life will be destroyed for years if you try to fight this. Just pay the bribe. It will go away. This is the way it works. So do you think the people who instituted the bribe situation on you, do you think they're still going to merge into... I know you already answered this, but I'm just trying to reapply it. So you don't think that they actually... What they did was unethical in your standards and your rule book. But do you think that matters ultimately? No, I think ultimately we all operate mostly based on our mind-body organisms, upbringing, and genetics. And and that's also one of the reasons why this is probably not what you're asking me about, but I, I mean, it affects my philosophy on, on crime and punishment and justice. No, that's exactly what I'm asking you about. I love this. Keep Keep going. Well, I mean, I think that it's fine for us to punish people. I think it's fine for us to have a criminal code and it's fine to send people to jail. But I don't think that it should be based on – I don't think it's the guilty party's fault entirely, and I think that most social scientists would agree. You know, Often a criminal – let's take you know, one of the crimes that a lot of people debate about, like drug crimes, right? You know, The people who are caught up in the jurisprudence system and are behind bars for you know, even violent crimes with weapons uh, associated with drugs were often – led down a path of least resistance that led them to that decision that ended them up in the court system and in jail, but that that was a system that they were born into, that they were a part of, that they were living and that they experienced, and that the individual decisions they made on the path that led them down to that point where they interacted with the justice system actually make sense in the context of the society that they were in. And I don't blame them entirely as being, you know, morally awful or having made moral mistakes you know, at every point along the way, I think some of it was just the way they were raised, the society they were in, the parents they had, the friends they were introduced to, the teachers they had in school, the street they grew up on, the people surrounding them. And they made decisions that made sense for them that was not necessarily immoral. And the same way with the person who got the bribe from me. I think that that was just the way that they'd been, you know, sort of trained. That was the way their organism, the way they operate in society. Well, so you said earlier that you studied religion. I mean, I know your whole background, but for our audience, you studied religion, uh, you've studied philosophy, you're currently um, a history teacher, but you've done a lot with with all of these fields that actually apply to this podcast, which is one of the reasons you're one of my first guests ever. And so what I want to know is, um, do you believe that there's, you've studied a lot of cultures, is there a universal ethical rule that is generally speaking universal and followed? Well, you know, as well as I do the the golden rule, do unto others as you've had them do unto you, is basically it. And, and when I when we talk about things like morality and law, you know, I think it's very important to have morality and law. You know, I think that you look at the Mesopotamians, and one of the things that we remember them for in, in history class is the law code, the Hammurabi's code of law. You know, and I think codes provide law codes provide. And was that uh, not to step all over you, but was that eye for an eye? Yeah, 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 eye for an eye. But also, you know, two thousand other ones. And and basically, the the idea of having a law code um, provides stability and predictability for society and allows cultural development at a higher level. 
So, okay, I want to jump now. This is not a stretch in my head, but you, you do have two children and they're pretty young. One is five and one is eight, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so let's, let's just talk about the five-year-old. Um, does the five-year-old understand morality and ethics in your opinion? Sometimes if, if it's been something that's been repeated, that that, there's a development happening there. But is there an intuitive, natural understanding of ethics? It's a good question. No, I I don't think so. I mean, I I think that like if you were to throw a bunch of humans who are babies out into the woods and have them grow up, they would form ethics. I think it's a natural thing that happens, but I'm not sure it's intuitive without a group. Like one alone does not form ethics. Ethics are based on the group. That, That does make sense to me. And I would never argue against that, nor would I argue for it necessarily. But the reason I'm mentioning that is because what I want to understand is, do you believe there's any sort of natural ethical system that develops? You said the golden rule, you cited one, but because you have two young children and you've watched them grow up and you've had to instill ethical boundaries and ethical rules, not only your own, but the ones that school and society demands, I'm kind of curious how it feels to be on that side of of evolution now, as opposed to going into your own memories and and that trip to India yeah. Well, I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, like, for example, you know, you have a girl child and you try to enforce the norms of wearing clothes in a certain way. But if they had been born a boy, boy child, I would maybe let them run around in their underwear more. You know, and like, is this right or wrong? No. Is it culturally normative? Yes. You know, I don't I, there are rights and wrongs, but I think that the vast majority of things are not right and wrong. And when so you ask me if there's like a, a true law to everything that is determinative of right and wrong. You know, like I like to go to the simple one of like do unto others, right? But like, you know, then you can go into these systems of philosophy where like, you know, in 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 Jainism and Buddhism and Hinduism to a certain extent, you know, you're you're supposed to try not to kill insects. You know, you don't want to kill insects. Like, why would you bring on, you know, do an action that would possibly cause harm to your karma, right? Like or because obviously, you know, it's not necessarily harming you to kill an insect. It's it's you know, not the link is not clear. So why would you refrain from, you know, killing insects or, or mice in your house if you're in a society or a culture that believes in karma? Well, the reason is because of your belief system, right? It's also a cultural norm to a certain extent, the same way with the type of clothes we wear. But the question is then, you know, could I, do, could I believe or does someone believe that that affects them in the next life or does it affect them spiritually? And so they, they, I, they people do, right? Um, but it's not exactly do unto others, you know, because an insect is not an other, right? But then, you know, I can see the value in teaching people to not kill, right? Like if in your society, you always teach everyone to not kill insects and small mammals, you know, like I can see the value that it's a value system, but I'm not sure if it's a truth. If you go to a different society where they they regularly kill insects and eat insects, you, you could value that also. You could say it's you know it allows them to have more humans and less deaths because insects might carry disease, you know, and their food might spoil less. I mean, you know, in, in India to a certain extent, there's a, a worry about food spoiling because there's less insect poison, there's less insecticide, you know, and there's more of a fear of people who are under poverty losing their food goods and and would they be better off if they poisoned their insects more i don't know 
Well, so we are running up on the um, time limit I've set for these podcasts. So I do have two burning questions and they're unique. They're based on our conversation, not just for any guests. So the first one is, have you ever faced an ethical dilemma that was really hard to do the right thing and then you did the right thing or vice versa, you ended up doing the wrong thing? I would argue that, yes, there have been both cases. And so my question for you is now that you've analyzed yourself out loud on this podcast with me, what would be the lesson you've learned about yourself and morality if you could come up with one? I don't know, because now I'm wondering if some of these things nobody knows about, right? So what if the what if the morality is a secret and the action was a secret and no one will ever know about it? My question to you and to myself is, does it matter? I mean, that's the ultimate. I love ending the podcast with that question. Does it matter? And uh, Sam, that was excellent. Thank you. I, I easily could have talked to you for another 20 or 30 minutes, and I might even have you back on. Uh, is there anything you want to add? Anything you want to say? Yeah. I mean, so like, where? well, yeah, where I was going at the end there with does it matter is like, so let's say you're going down the street, right? And you identify a moral decision. And you do that moral decision one way or the other. Let's say it's, it's you know, um, cursing under your breath at someone who you think did something idiotic, or it's stepping on an insect that is not threatening you or anyone else, and it's going to run down into a, a garbage drain anyway. You know, like, it, does it matter? Like, does it actually have an effect? You know, and then there's bigger, you know, moral decisions too. Like, you know, you, you're, no one ever is going to find out, but you steal something. No one's ever going to find out. But you, you know, you you take a parking ticket that's flown away and put it back on the car window, you know, helping the police and hurting the individual who parked. You know, like, do these things matter in the in in the infinite? In the if if it's like a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, you know, it's like, do moral decisions matter if you can't determine the effect of them? Well, I love that. I love that as a way to end the podcast. And so Sam Oppenheim, my dear, dear brother, thank you for adding another nail to the coffin. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on. And thank you again. Thank you for hosting me. Be well. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks again. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and this is Coffin Talk, exit interviews with the living. Stay tuned for more episodes. Walking alone when I walk into you.